Good morning, everyone. Welcome to um, the, the last stage, at least chronologically, in our discussion of early church history. Um, this is going to be a, a section devoted to the early papacy, um, which I've indicated on your handout here. We'll cover roughly 64 AD to, two, uh, to 452 AD, um, a very, really a, a diachronic, this means sort of a, a thorough survey of the period that we've been discussing um, from its beginning into a, a very important um, stopping place for or sort of period division point um, in what we're doing here. And the verses that I've put up there, uh, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, you're probably very familiar with. And one of the things I wanted to say from the beginning is that I'm not going to engage in a sort of Reformation debate about the, the proper interpretation of these verses. What I hope to do um, instead is to give you an historical context about um, how these verses were taken, what role they played in some of the um, earliest stages of church development, and that will give us some context for later on, um, talking about the church in the Middle Ages, hopefully, um, and then uh, when you go to study what's going on in those Reformation debates in the 16th and 17th century, you'll uh, maybe have some, some sense about uh, what some of the historical claims are that are being made on both sides. Uh, the uh, both, both sides of the Reformation debate take this period and read it in very different ways. So I'd like to give you um, a, an introduction to that period uh, chronologically and just see where some of the major issues that uh, are going to be coming up throughout church history, talking about the, the importance of the office of the Bishop of Rome, and um, help you guys, uh, just give you some tools to, to be thinking about the, this very important issue. So these verses... And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So these are the words recorded in Matthew of Jesus to Peter. And we'll begin our chronological discussion with uh, the end point of the career of Peter, as it's traditionally understood, and we'll go on from there. So, circa 64 AD, Peter and Paul were most likely martyred in Rome in this year. Um, there's generally a consensus on this point, but it's, um, not, we're not entirely sure. The evidence for the first several points that I'm going to make here, all of them before about the year 200, uh, the evidence tends to be kind of scant. Um, there are some non-canonical uh, non uh, Christian sources that talk about these, some, some apocryphal um, acts and gospels that give us bits and pieces here and there, and there are a few letters from early um, church members that we've collected that we can kind of piece together some of these things. But it's very difficult to sift through the, the fact from legend. There are quite a lot of um, legendary accounts of what happens uh, later on with the apostles and then some of the uh, earliest generations of the uh, apostles' followers. But it seems most likely that Peter and Paul were both in Rome for um, a significant period of time before 64 AD and were probably... Um, martyred under the uh, persecution against Christians there instigated by the Emperor Nero um, in this year following a devastating fire in the capital. So there's a fire set, we know not by whom. Um, there are a couple of different ancient theories uh, about who it might have been. Uh, one of them saying that it was in fact the Emperor Nero himself uh, who was a little bit off uh, and was getting more and more off uh, as he went through his tenure as emperor. Um, some said that he wanted to burn out the whole center of the city just so he could build his wonderful new palace uh, called the Golden House, which he did build. Um, other people said that it was 
the Christians, who out of just spite and envy of the world wanted to set it, wanted to set a fire, um, most likely, in my opinion, it is probably some kind of an accidental fire that got out of hand. Uh, if you may not know this, if you've visited some um, ancient sites around the Mediterranean, they look like they're all made of stone. But in fact, uh, ancient cities were 90% or even more wood. And they caught fire all the time. Houses were built far too close together. Later emperors tried to impose some sort of order on the way houses are building. They issued laws saying they have to be a certain distance apart from one another. Streets have to be um, a certain width. But in practical reality, houses, um, shanty houses were being built up, um, especially in the largest cities, very close to one another all the time. And they would burn regularly. So it's not, not difficult for an historian to say, well, it probably was just a cooking fire that got out of hand. But what it did result in was one of the earliest recorded bouts of persecution against Christians. It reveals the fact that Christians, whether they were guilty or not, could be a plausible scapegoat. And Peter and Paul uh, were most likely um, victims of this particular bit of persecution. And this is very important since both Peter and Paul were martyred in the city of Rome. Um, in the, the importance of martyrs uh, becomes uh, vastly amplified throughout our period, and these are two of the single most important members of the church. Um, and so to have them both martyred in Rome, to have their, um, their relics, their churches, everything centered in the city of Rome, is going to later on become one of the linchpins of the arguments of um, people holding the office of Pope uh, for the authority invested in that office, is the fact that this happened there. So that's really just one generation after um, Jesus. And then moving on another generation forward in the year 96 AD, uh, we have a situation in which Clement of Rome, the leader of the congregation in the city of Rome, intervened in a dispute in a, in, it's recorded in a surviving letter to the church at Corinth. And we know this letter as First Clement. It is one of uh, the letters that we call as a group the Apostolic Fathers, writings that come down from the first generation after the apostles. And some Corinthian presbyters had been deposed. And Clement writes to them in a pastoral letter reminding the congregation that the apostles, quote, appointed bishops and deacons in every place. And it was uh, the authority of these, on the authority of these appointees that the churches around the Mediterranean that had been founded were going to get their continued direction. They were going to, this is going to, the, the authority for shaping the Christian community was in this kind of um, apostolic succession. So, this, is, this letter is used in two counts. It shows us, number one, uh, an early sense of uh, apostolic authority being transmitted down in some kind of a chain. And number two, it shows a, an instance in, still in the first century in which um, a leader of the Roman congregation steps in pastorally in a dispute in another major congregation that's fairly far away. I mean, Corinth is in Greece. An entirely different province of the empire. It's not just in sort of Rome's backyard, but the the uh, leader of the Roman Church feels feels that he has some kind of a say in, in what's going on there. However, what he does not do is he does not quote the Matthew verses and say, "Because I'm in direct succession because from St. Peter, you absolutely have to listen to what I say." He doesn't go that far. He he says this is one you know I'm a, an authoritative Christian leader. Um, not involved in your dispute, and here I have some words of wisdom to say that I think you should listen to, but he doesn't come down and say, nope, you're, you're legally bound to, to listen to my solution and implement it. So that's what's going on still in the first century. 
by the end of the second century, uh, popes are starting to make a little bit um, wider and more far-reaching claims. So in about the year 190, the Pope Victor I ordered synods to be held throughout Christendom, through, so which is, at this point would be basically around the, the rim of the Mediterranean, uh, to bring the date for the observance of Easter into line with Roman custom. We've, we've encountered this once or twice before in this class so far, that um, as churches spread, they, the, com the computations for calculating the date of Easter were very complicated. Not every place used the same ones. And it becomes an issue for um, deciding how unified the church is going to be and also um, deciding on the power structure of the church. So the, the, the area of the church that gets to impose its computations for the date of Easter is de facto going to have a certain amount of authority over the other churches. And at this particular juncture, um, Pope Victor decides that he wants to bring the observance of Easter into line around the Mediterranean with Roman custom. <laughs> However, he is not successful. Um, this, uh, many churches in various parts, particularly the further away you get from Rome, uh, end up keeping their own um, systems of observance. Another important thing to note that's going on at about this time period, and will continue on really through the third and the fourth centuries, is that this title, Pope, which I've first introduced here um, with, Pope, with Pope Victor, um, no, notice I don't use it with Clement of Rome, is a title derived from the Greek and Latin words for father. And it is not exclusive to the Bishop of Rome. It is not, at this point, um, something that he lays, lays claim to and says, I, I am the, the one, the only um, father within the church. It is something that's used for, um, as a title for several of the major bishoprics um, in the Roman Empire. So in, in particular, the bishopric of Alexandria and of Antioch. You have, at various points in the literature, um, references to Pope so-and-so, who is understood not to be in Rome. He's, he's in Egypt, he might be in Syria, something like that. Um, and so it's a, an important thing to keep in mind that uh, many of the things that we associate exclusively with the Bishop of Rome and with the, the, pap the, the Roman Catholic papacy um, are not necessarily arrogated exclusively to that office um, in the earlier periods. So that's what's going on through the second century. We see a, an actual attempt at that point. Yeah. Both and, in answer to your question, actually. Uh, well, they have, uh, actually, they have systems of authority within the synagogues. Um, I mean, in the temple, which is at this point destroyed, you, you had a priestly class and you had a system of authority there. Within the synagogues, the, the houses of worship that are springing up now throughout the Mediterranean world, you have um, references to leaders within those synagogues. Um, uh, titles that are given, and it's, it's unclear from the literature exactly what kind of authority these people had and how it was given to them, but there's, we're, we're not, we're not coming, we're not opposing a strictly democratic or a strictly congregational um, uh, sort of level playing field with, with a, a hierarchy being, being put in from the outside. Within the New Testament, within the pastoral letters, first, um, uh, first and Second Timothy and Titus, you have, um, references to uh, leaders that are being appointed. That's actually where we get our words. Um, so bishop, um, episkopos is the Greek word for an overseer. <coughs> an overseer. Uh, presbyter is from the Greek word for an elder. Um, deacon uh, is, is a kind of 
servant, but it's a person who um, serves in some sort of elected capacity in some sort of an official role. So these, those are the th those are the major orders of church authority that are present all the way already within the New Testament, and this is being uh, built on in the early church. And uh, at the same time, however, which we'll see a little bit more of, particularly in the um, coming centuries, is that the highest levels of church government, these um, these bishops in the major sees, are going to start modeling their authority on the existing structure of the Roman government. Uh, the way that the Rome is divided up into provinces is in a large part based on the governing power of the large cities within those provinces. And so when you have a bishop who's in charge of the entire church in that city, it makes sense for his administrative structure to start mirroring the Roman administrative structure. And uh, there are going to be conflicts between uh, the Bishop of Rome and some of the, the bishops of these major, other major sees about how closely the Roman Church should model its structure, its authoritarian structure on the Roman Empire, and how much it should go its own way. Uh, in 254 to 57, there's a controversy following a major a bout of persecution under the Emperor Decius. We've actually discussed this about a month and a half ago um, in talking about the, it's what we call the Latsist controversy, in which Christians who were, who um, denied the faith or gave up their scriptural books in times of persecution, after that persecution passes, want to be admitted back into communion with the church, and the church has, has something of an identity crisis, deciding how forgiving are we going to be and how much, uh, what kind of penance are we going to impose on these uh, the people who want back in? And we're going to say, well, and we're going to wonder how valid are sacraments being administered by people who have um, who have lapsed and then come back into the church? And if someone who didn't lapse was ordained by someone who had, is his ordination valid? Um, and are the sacraments that he administers valid? And this becomes a controversy over the. Um, Baptism by heretics or baptism by lapsed people um, between Cyprian of Carthage and Pope Stephen I. And the point that I want to make here about that rather complex controversy is simply that uh, Pope Stephen I in the mid-third century is the first pope on record to say, my authority in this dispute comes from the fact that I stand in the office of St. Peter. And he invokes Matthew 16:18 to say it. Yeah, we don't know if this is the first time that any pope ever said it, since our records are very spotty before this time period, but he is the first one to do it. And it's notable to see that it's the mid-third century before um, people in Rome are saying, uh, this verse applies uniquely to us, because Peter was martyred here, Peter led the congregation here, um, ordained uh, someone to follow after him, and that person was after him, and now we have an unbroken succession specifically to me in a unique way. We have, in the second century, we have Irenaeus making arguments about apostolic succession in a, in a more general way and using Rome as an example. So this isn't, this isn't coming out of nowhere in the third century, but it is, uh, what, I would, what I'm hoping to show is that there are sort of a constellation of ideas about the office of the Bishop of Rome that are being um, brought in piece by piece over this time period. So in the mid-third century, that's where we are now. We have um, a, a tradition of people calling themselves Pope. They, they are uh, some one of the most important leaders in the Christian church. They are intervening on occasions in 
disputes in other major congregations throughout the Mediterranean, and now uh, one pope in particular is making the claim that his authority among the bishops of the church is not simply one of a particularly powerful um, bishopric that has a very good record of orthodoxy, but it is also one that um, is uniquely differentiated among the other bishoprics by scripture itself. So jumping forward again and looking at things from the other side from um, uh, a more from a conciliar perspective in 381 uh, you remember the second council of uh, excuse me the second ecumenical council and the first council of Constantinople met in the Eastern Empire and one of the things that this council did among other things uh, it's most notable for its uh, Trinitarian Creed, the creed that we still uh, recite and sing today in uh, church here. One of the other canons, one of the other directives that this assembly of bishops made in the late 4th century uh, was a declaration that the Bishop of Constantinople, um, sometimes also called the Patriarch, uh, and of the city that is known as New Rome, should rank second after the Bishop of Rome. Now, on first thought, if you're the Bishop of Rome, you might think, well, this is a really good thing. I mean, now, not only am I saying that I'm the one that's really in charge, but this entire council is saying that, that I'm, I'm the one that's, that's first. But in fact, the Pope at the time, Pope Damasus, uh, was displeased with this canon, not because of what it says about the primacies of the Bishopric of Rome, but its reasonings for it. Because it implies that because Rome, old Rome, is the first city of the Roman Empire, the political center of a temporal institution. Therefore, its bishop is the most powerful. And New Rome, this city founded by Constantine and dedicated in the year 330, a real newcomer on the stage, it's, at this point it's been around for only 50 years as a seat of government, is now all the way up to second place. And why is it there? It's not there because it has this grand tradition of martyrs. It doesn't even have any of the apostles. Um, it's there because of its political authority, because that's where the emperor is. And the Bishop of Rome at this point, in about 381, is looking around saying, Eastern emperors are becoming quite a bit more powerful than Western emperors at this point. And the, the future of my bishopric should not be based on the political status of the city of Rome, um, which for large portions of later Roman history is not even the um, political capital of the later empire. At this point, the emperor is residing in Milan, and later on we'll move to Ravenna and other places in Italy. And so Rome is um, being a little bit cut off um, at this point from the political power that it enjoyed in the first and second centuries, unquestioned. And so for a, a, a council of the church, an ecumenical council of the church, to give this kind of qualified support to the uh, Bishop of Rome was something that this particular um, Pope, Pope Damasus, was not happy with. Um, he did not like the idea that his authority should be in any way tied to the secular authority of the city of Rome. He wanted to, to move back to these scriptural um, supports that we've been talking about. And so he brings out the, um, the, the authority of these, the, his authority based on these verses and based on uh, a scriptural reading and understanding of the uh, role of Peter in the New Testament in a big way. Uh, which we'll see here at um, one year later in 382 at a council in Rome, uh, Pope Damasus issues a, a detailed statement of papal authority uh, and its, its arguments that are featured, among other things, on uh, this verse here, Matthew 8, uh, 16, 18. 
he, recognizing the kind of challenge that he's facing from a council of, uh, from the authority of ecumenical councils, um, from first from this Council of Constantinople, he goes back and he, he claims about the Council of Nicaea. Remember, this is uh, a couple generations earlier now, back in 325, the first ecumenical council, the one that gives, that gives us the Nicene Creed um, in its original form, and a, a council that is being widely recognized by the end of the fourth century as a truly authoritative um, gathering of church leaders. Uh, Pope Damasus makes this really clever move, and he says, the authority of that council rested on its approval by the Pope, by Sylvester I, who was Pope at the time, not on the fact that it was a, an ecumenical assembly of Christian bishops. So he's retroactively saying, no, 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 whatever, the, whatever that council said, whether it was orthodox or not, whatever um, authority those bishops had, the, the true authority of that ecumenical council is being, going to be um, validated by my office, by my predecessor. And so he is pulling out the trump card and saying, however important an ecumenical council is, it's actually only given its final authority by the authority, by the authority vested in my office, which he's going to make scriptural arguments for. So you can see that um, we've, we've come quite a long way, even from in 96, where Clement of Rome is issuing directives to a, church, to a congregation outside of Rome. We now have a pope saying no. Um, even a, a, an authoritative gathering of bishops from the entire Christian world, almost the entire Christian world, um, none of the ecumenical councils was um, quite completely represented in that way, but um, one that had gained authority over a couple of generations now, uh, saying you know, that this is the true interpretation of orthodoxy over against the Arian controversy. Uh, the, pope, the papacy is now appropriating that authority to itself. So any questions on that stuff so far before we move on to a, a primary source that will give us a, 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 a window into what things were actually looking like on the ground in, in Rome in this period? Do these, do these steps in, in piecing authority together, do they, are they starting to make sense? Uh, the, yeah, the, the line between um, secular and religious authority is, is being blurred after Constantine. Once Constantine makes Christianity legal and starts to give it legal privileges, and Christians are, if you will, out in the open um, building their institutions, it becomes more and more difficult to, to separate these two. Yeah. Yeah. When was the, what was the date that the church there will be a schism between East and West in the 6th century that will be overcome. It will be about 30 years where the um, Patriarch of Constantinople and, the, uh, and the, the Pope excommunicate one another, but they, they managed to, to come back together. And the final break, the one that is endured until today, won't actually occur until the mid-10th century. No, excuse me, mid-11th century in 1054. So these churches, the, that's another thing that we can see here is a growing divide, and this is illustrated in the, this, com, this competition between Old and New Rome, um, between the Greek, East, the Greek East and the Latin West is, is growing throughout this period. 
um, for political and social reasons is as much as theological ones. In the back. Can you tell um, about the writings that are just in, is this just a power grab by these guys, or do they really feel like they're, just, they're doing this for the betterment of the church? I think that it's a very difficult question um, and has, is one that has to be answered on a case-by-case basis. And very often, I think it's both. I don't think that these, I don't think that it's fair to point to many of these characters, whether it be someone like Constantine or Pope Damasus, um, and say, he's doing it all, it's all just for power, it's all just, you know, for his own betterment. Or on the other hand, finding someone that's a more sympathetic character and saying, no, he, he's really, this one is just doing it um, entirely for the church, completely and totally selfless. Um, I mean, there, there's the sense that, well, in order to get things done appropriately, in order to maintain orthodoxy, one has to have some amount of power. Um, this comes, you know, in, in Athanasius might be an example of someone who is, uh, he's considered throughout church history the staunch defender of um, Christian orthodoxy over against Arianism at times where he's completely alone. He, he gets exiled five, five different times from his bishopric. However, on sort of a personal administrative level, he had a kind of a heavy hand um, uh, within, on the Egyptian church scene, making, making things happen his own way, sometimes overriding um, democratic ideals and even being accused on a couple of occasions of inciting violence in order to get his own way. So that is a great question to ask, whether or not someone is being motivated by um, sincere um, belief or by a um, a, a desire for power, but it's one that's pretty much always going to have a nuanced and often less satisfactory answer than we might want. Yeah. What kind of backlash was there as some of these statements were put out? I mean, were they just accepted, or uh, one of the things that we'll see is the diff there's a difference, there, there's a gap between theoretical claims being made and practical authority being instituted. And one of those gaps is going to fall along geographical lines that we've just been discussing, the, the Greek East versus the Latin West. Um, especially in the later Roman Empire when a, um, an authority figure in the West says, this is the way it is for the entire empire, it's fairly easy for people in the East to say, that's, that's nice that you said that, and we'll take it under consideration, and so we're going to continue doing our own thing. Um, and so for, for Pope Damasus to make these kinds of claims in the late 4th century is not quite the same thing as, um, say, one particular example of Gregory VII in much, much later, outside of our time period, um, in the 11th century, making claims about the authority of the papacy versus that of the Holy Roman Empire, a, a, a Germanic entity that comes up later, and where he gets the, empire, the emperor to um, stand out outside of his castle in the snow after he's been excommunicated barefoot and asking for forgiveness for three days, and the pope gets, gets to stand there and say, okay, now that you've demonstrated your, 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 your piety, I'll allow you back in, and I'll stop encouraging all of your nobles to rebel against you. So the kind of authority that um, Damascus is claiming in the 4th century isn't something that he can truly back up in the way that some medieval popes are going to be able to do, um, which is an important thing to, to, to remember in terms of historical periodization, is that these, 
that ancient popes don't have uh, this, the same um, ability to put their words into practice that uh, the papacy will um, arrogate to itself in later centuries. And uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to, to put those um, two periods in, contrast, uh, in um, comparison with one another um, in, in future sessions. When all these things going on, going on at the top level, what was happening with the rank and file and the, the small people? Did they just take what came along out of Rome or whatever? Or did it really have no effect at all? And how about the intermediate people? Were they just they told what to do, or were there, were there some dissension among the, uh, those folks? Or? What's going on with the, the common people on the ground is something that we always wish we knew more about for this period. We don't have very many voices speaking to us saying, I'm an ordinary parishioner in Italy or Gaul or um, Syria, and here's what I think about what's going on at the top levels. Um, I wish that we had more. Um, we have some sense in the... Um, in the mid-level that you mentioned, with so more minor bishops, um, particularly in the Western Empire, one thing that we can point to is a trend in this period where more of them are looking to the Bishop of Rome as an authority figure, kind of along the lines of what hap what's going on in, in the letter of First Clement. We have letters coming from these provincial bishops saying, I have a problem in my bishopric here in Gaul, and I'd like to get your opinion on it. Um, with the understanding that I'm probably going to implement what your decision is and what crazy, you know, something too far out there. And uh, this is a, um, a, a trend that's going to have important uh, implications for the way the, the papacy sees itself, particularly uh, in the century that's following um, what's going on here with Pope Damasus. So there is, there is a sense, particularly in the West, because in, in the East, you have, um, there are many more Christians, there are many more people. There are, um, it's kind of the opposite of what we think of today. We think of the Western Mediterranean as sort of the vibrant, um, modernized center, and the East is a bit backwards, kind of um, not agriculturally very productive, so it doesn't have as many people, the economy is much um, less well-developed, um, and that's sort of the case it is way in the modern world. The ancient world is the opposite. The West was full of forests and savages and was only lightly civilized in sort of in their in their mindset, um, with one exception being the city of Rome itself. Whereas the east, which is full of cities, everywhere you go along the coast, throughout the eastern Mediterranean, there's always another big city right there. And so you have many, many major many many important bishoprics in the east. And you don't have to go very far if you're sort of a, a minor bishop to find somebody, your metropolitan, the, the person of your, the, the bishop in charge of the mother city in your, your Roman province, to get a quick answer. Whereas in the West, the, the city, the authority of the city of Rome casts a much longer shadow because there are many fewer powerful bishops with, with whom the bishop of Rome needs to compete. So in just practical terms, um, it's easier for the Roman episcopate to um, arrogate some of these um, uh, sort of uh, um, bits of authority to itself without, throughout the, the Western Roman provinces um, just because 
they, when they look around, the, the, the next most important person they see is all the way out in Rome, so they're willing to write to the Bishop of Rome. Um, so that's, that's one major, some of the major differences that are going on between the East and the West, and one of the reasons why in the East they don't really see the need for a single overarching authority figure. They think they've got a good thing going with a series of major, a series of important bishops in Antioch, Alexandria, um, Constantinople, uh, by the 5th century Jerusalem as well, and that when they meet together in councils, that that's, that's a pretty good way to do things. Um, in in the, the West, the, um, the papacy is seeing things in a bit different way. So why don't we turn to a, a bit of social history and look at um, what an outsider, one of the last outsiders actually, in the sense of a religious outsider in the Western Empire, thinks about what's going on at, at an important moment in the development of the papacy in the fourth century. So we're going to be reading from Ammianus Marcellinus, who was really the last um, Latin pagan historian of Rome. In the grand tradition um, be begun by Livy, carried on by Tacitus, um, Ammianus brings the history of Rome down to his own day. He died somewhere around the year 380, and so what we have survived of his work is a very detailed account of events from 354 to 378. And Ammianus was, besides being a historian, was also a military commander. He went out on campaign with the Emperor Julian. You may remember the Emperor Julian. We've talked about him a bit before. Um, he's the, the last emperor after Constantine to try and revert the empire back to um, its pagan roots. But he uh, was in power for only two years before he was killed in battle. So Ammianus was out on campaign with him. Ammianus was also a pagan. Um, however, he was not totally on board with Julian's program. He thought that Julian's restrictions on Christian teaching, um, teaching of the classics, was going too far. And he, when he talks about Christians, he tends to give a relatively balanced picture of them. He's not himself a Christian. He doesn't agree with them. But he sees that there's good and bad in what they're doing. Um, and... He gives us an account of a kind of, a, well, not kind of, what's truly a, a disastrous moment in the um, history of the Western Church. And in the year 366, Damascus, whom we've just been talking about, was elected pope by the majority of the clergy and of the people of Rome, but the a minority of the clergy and people in Rome elected a rival named Ursinus. Each man had devoted followers, and these followers on both sides were willing to resort to violence in order to get their candidate into office. And this violence was not ended until by imperial fiat, the emperor Valentinian I intervenes on behalf of Damasus and banishes Ursinus to Germany. So it's unclear um, in, in the historical context how, how interested either rival pope was in having his followers resort to violence. Um, so and Ammianus is not willing to make that distinction, so I'd like to get that out there ahead of time. But what Ammianus does give us is a very vivid snapshot of what it looks like to be Pope in Rome, um, what, what kind of um, authority that person enjoys, and what his office looks like um, in, in actuality by the 4th century. And it's going to look quite a bit different from what we see in going on in the New Testament. Um, so do we have a volunteer that would like to, to read uh, these two paragraphs right here? It's good stuff. Okay. The and the 
did not stop short of wounds and death. His anxious, unable to end or abate his strength, was compelled by force and door to withdraw to the suburbs. The efforts of his partisans secured the victory for the master. It is certain that in the Basilica of Athenius, where the Christians assembled for worship, 137 corpses were found on a single day, and it was only with difficulty that the long continued fury of the people was later brought under control. Considering the ostentatious luxury of life in the city, it is only natural that those who are ambitious of enjoying it should engage in the most strenuous competition to attain their goal. Once they have reached it, they are assured of rich gifts and ladies of quality. They can ride in carriages, dress splendid, and announce their change in the lavishness of their table. They might be truly happy if they would pay no regard to the greatness of the city, which they make their cloak for their vices, and follow the example of some provincial bishop whose extreme frugality in food and drink, simple attire, and downcast eyes demonstrate to the supreme God and his true worshippers the purity and modesty of their lives. Thank you very much. So what are some of the things that you see going on in this passage? Does anything really stand out to you um, as being striking or unusual? Yeah. It almost kind of reminds you of a mini Canterbury tale and kind of links in between different groups out there. Yeah, there's a little bit of that feel. Um, it's an interesting parallel. I like that. So distinction be distinctions between different groups. What kind of uh, what groups are you seeing? I like the humility of the Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a sort of, there's a city-province dichotomy going on. The, the, the wealth of the city of Rome, it's only natural. The person in charge having high office there is going to be um, corrupted by wealth. And then the provincial bishops, the ones that are outside, maintain, he doesn't call it a sort of, he doesn't, he doesn't use the, the phrase an apostolic uh, mean or an apostolic uh, persona, but that's, those are the, the trappings, um, the frugality in food and drink, the simple attire, and the downcast eyes. That's going to be um, sort of, it, it's, it's, a, it's striking to me that a pagan would bring that up. Um, since that's very much a, an inter-church inter um, sort of discussion about what it means to live a life of humility. Those are, those are very similar criteria to what people in the church are talking about. Yeah, Dan. Right. And it's fascinating too that this powerful um, Roman aristocrat who has campaigned with the emperor and knew him personally would think that the office of Bishop of Rome is something worth competing for. He says, well, yeah. I mean, of course you would. He's, this is this, this office has power now. This office has wealth. Um, makes sense to me. That we've come a really long way from the first century where um, Nero says, says, okay, this, this sort of 
this group I've just been hearing a couple of bad things about there. That sounds like a good scapegoat. Let's get rid of them. Let's pin it on them. Um, people who are living, meeting in house churches and things like that. Um, we've, things have changed quite a bit between um, the mid first century and 366. Heard the first paragraph. They're saying of Caesar and Pompey, Pompey, where they pronounce it. Pompey, yeah. <coughs> and uh, Cicero, who was not willing to take either side, was uh, Ezekiel's leaving town. Uh, well, he, it looked like he was actually run out of town. Um, he, the, the Ventius would have been the, um, the the urban prefect who was in charge of maintaining order by the secular government um, in Rome at the time, and Clearly, he was unable to actually get control of the situation and had to leave. Um, so probably with his personal guard, um, just left Rome rather than have his, you know, be killed. Yes. Um, we had several large churches by the end of the by the later fourth century. Um, we had them even in the third century, some significant ones, but um, even before Christianity was legalized. But after post Constantine, in particular, Constantine himself actually commissioned several large churches to be built in Rome, um, including one on the Vatican Hill um, dedicated to St. Peter. So there are there are several, and they they figure prominently in this particular um, in this particular event. Do we know which one this is? Can you know anything about this facility? Oh, today? Uh, it hasn't survived, to my knowledge. So to give you a little bit, um, uh, to balance out uh, Ammianus' perspective a little bit, so Pope Damasus, elected in 366, still around as we've seen in 381 and 82, has quite a long and successful tenure as Bishop of Rome by most accounts. He was an excellent administrator above all. He puts the sort of um, the uh, clerical aspect of the papacy, its ability to transact business through letters um, and scribes on a very good footing um, in, in a much better way than it had been before. So he's able to efficiently run business to take in these letters that we've been talking about from bishops that want him to handle disputes from throughout the Western Empire. Um, to, to deal with them much more efficiently. He raises funds to build new churches and to support the poor in the city. So while his election is most definitely stained, um, his tenure as bishop uh, goes a long way towards sort of ameliorating the effects of the fact that um, people were killing one another over who should be bishop. Um, so this is, this is a period where the good gets mixed in with the bad, um, which is one of the things that I, will, I hope to show um, uh, as sort of a back and forth in, in developments here. And uh, hi while I'm highlighting this um, steady accumulation of supports for papal authority in, uh, in a unique way. So moving on to the next stage in, and the final stage, at least for the purposes of this course, of developments in this office, um, we come to Pope Leo, Leo I in 451. He is the first pope uh, to be given the epithet great. He is known to history as Leo the Great for a couple of reasons that we'll um, see in just a moment. In 451, he issues his tome, 
this is a theological work, which is actually not as long as it sounds. It's only about 10 pages. Um, but it's dense and it is important. Uh, it draws heavily on Augustine. And it is a work that provided much of the basis for the definition of the Council of Chalcedon. Um, this is the council which acknowledges that Christ is one person in two complete natures. And these, um, these phrases that I've highlighted here in, um, in italics, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Um, in uh, both Latin and Greek, there, there are four different adverbs. And they are the, at the heart of the theology of this council, which um, uh, Junius will be talking about next week in some detail, so I won't go into it here. Um, what I will tell you, though, is that this council, this is the fourth in the series of ecumenical councils that we've been talking about. Uh, Nicaea is number one. Constantinople is number two. Ephesus is number three. We've talked about each of these um, at different points so far in, uh, in our course here. And Chalcedon is number four. And Chalcedon is important because while debates about Trinitarian Orthodoxy and our understanding of Christology do not uh, end with this, this is a very, this is the last great reference point in early church history on which the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and most mainline Protestant denominations all agree. So whether you are a Catholic, you are Presbyterian, you are Greek Orthodox, all three will look back to the Council of Chalcedon and say that the way that we understand who Christ is and how he relates to the Trinity, this um, Chalcedon got it right. Um, that, that is the point on which all, all traditions can agree and everything essentially before that. So you can be a Baptist and say, I, I um, agree, I understand and accept only the New Testament, but even Baptists interpret the statements in the New Testament about who Jesus is in terms of Nicaea and Chalcedon. So uh, from the historical point of view, that's one, one of the things that I would like you to take away from uh, your understanding of this council. From the point of view of the office of the papacy and bringing it back to Leo, the, there's an important difference, which we've highlighted already at the Second Ecumenical Council. When Leo issues his tome, he says that he's doing so on the authority of his office as the successor of St. Peter. When the bishops assemble, assemble the Chalcedon and approve it, and they do, and in fact they use whole sections of it in their definition, um, almost verbatim. Granted, it's going from Latin to Greek, but um, the, the, the heart of the theology is, is right there. They say that they approve it because it's orthodox, not because of who he is as he wrote it. They don't. So the difference is, Leo says, this is orthodox because I'm the successor of St. Peter. The bishops at Chalcedon say, we've read this, we understand it within the, the conciliar tradition and uh, standing it up against scripture, and we say that we determine that it's orthodox, and therefore, because we've, as a council, decided in common that it is orthodox, now it is. So very different ways of coming at the same um, conclusion about this, this piece of theology that uh, Leo's putting out there. So that's number one, why Leo gets to be called the great. And because he um, issues this, this piece of theology, which um, becomes enshrined in, throughout church history, really, um, until today, that it, it is one of the best ways of um, deciding on some very um, substantial and contested issues in Christology and uh, Trinitarian Orthodoxy. 
Uh, number two comes from the reason why Leo wasn't himself present at this council and sent a tome instead of going. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why a pope would choose not to be present at a council. Uh, number one is that traditionally popes had not been present. What they had done is they'd said, we, here's our understanding of the issues. We've, we've read over you know, many bits of the major theology that are going to be debated. Uh, and here's, here's our understanding of the theology. And they're going to send well-trained either bishops or presbyters um, from Rome who are going to act as papal, le papal legates. It would be like, kind of like a, a president sending a secretary of state to a foreign nation saying, here are the things that I want you to get out of your negotiations, and here's your leeway. You can go as far from, you know, you have, your boundaries are from A to B in terms of what kind of concessions you'll make, but, and you know the general reasoning behind what I want, and I'm empowering you, I'm delegating authority. Um, my authority as president to you, Mr. Ambassador, to sign a treaty if the treaty says um, certain things that I find acceptable. So the popes have, have made this their, um, their MO for um, attending church councils. So each, each major council has had papal representatives, but not actually the pope going. The pope going. Um, one reason for that is uh, popes are very busy. Another reason for that, um, however, what's different is, you know, other bishops in the East are very busy too, but they come themselves. <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons we can look back and say why popes wouldn't do, why, why they wouldn't be present personally, is because if by some chance people disagree with what the pope has to say, if they disagree with what his legates say, there's a little wiggle room. If they disagree with him in person, there's not. And he can maintain this sort of removed authority. Um, so it's, the, the, there's a political dimension to this as well as um, some practical and administrative ones. But in my opinion at least, um, Leo had a better excuse than most uh, for not attending. Um, how many people have heard of Attila the Hun before? <laughs> I think just about everybody. So, Attila the Hun was ravaging his way through Europe, and he was on a direct route for Rome at this particular time period when this great council was being called in the East. Um, Constantinople is not in danger of being attacked by Attila the Hun. Rome is. And so um, Leo goes out personally with some of the major senators from Rome, some of the very wealthy people. Um, he heads out north of Rome on the roads um, with uh, some very large chests of wood on some wagons filled with lots and lots of nice gold and wonderful things. And meets Attila on the road and says, Attila, do you, you don't really need to come in and sack Rome, do you? I think we can work this out ourselves. I really think that we can come to some kind of an agreement. Those really heavy wagons transfer themselves over to Attila's camp, and Attila goes on his way back north to ravage elsewhere. So Leo goes out, um, not single-handedly, there are some other people with him, but um, with the authority of the people of Rome uh, invested in him and gets Attila the Hun to turn aside. It's really kind of an extraordinary thing um, that he was able to do this. And it's very notable at this point um, in, a, in a larger sense that the Emperor Valentinian III was not present and had nothing to do with this. And this will show you that by the year 350, uh, 452, Western emperors are almost a non-entity. They are still around, and they will be around for another 25 years, but they have no real political power. And it is this political vacuum into which the, the bishops of Rome are able to step in a way that bishops in the East are not. In the East, you still have powerful Roman emperors 
in Constantinople ruling and having their word obeyed throughout half of the Mediterranean. In the West, it is the, the Roman imperial structure, not just the, not just the empire emperors themselves, but their officers, their governors, their um, provincial um, uh, delegates of authority are starting to simply disappear. It's, there, there are a few major battles against barbarians overrunning these provinces, but it's actually one of the extraordinary things about the end of the Western Roman Empire is how few there are. Um, Roman legions are simply sort of dissolving back into the countryside from which they were being recruited um, and fighting for their homes rather than fighting for a centralized government. And some of the only people that are left in the old Roman civic structure in the, in the cities that are there, um, even though there, there are fewer of them than there are in the, in the east, are the bishops. Suddenly the bishops are the most educated, the most wealthy, the most powerful people in their various cities. And in fact, many bishops in this time period are being recruited not simply because they are particularly pious members of the congregation, but because they are civic leaders. They are people who, um, who are able to keep some of the, the Roman institutions running. They're able to, they have the authority in the eyes of the, um, the people who are left to, to continue collecting taxes, to administer on occasion even the military forces of a particular area to um, maintain the buildings in the city. They're, they're what's left. And in fact, me old members of the Roman aristoc aristocracy are being pulled into the administrative structure by their congregation simply because they need someone to actually be in charge. And the best run network, um, sort of supranational network around is the church. It is this, this church that we saw Pope Damasus um, putting into administrative shape. And so one of the reasons why the popes from this period or in, and in later periods are able to arrogate some of the moral authority to themselves is because they are taking on um, many of the roles that the secular government had been able to play before in a way that bishops in the East are not able to do. Bishops in the East still have Roman emperors and Roman governors to deal with that are collecting taxes, raising armies, and doing all the things that governments are supposed to do. And in the, in the West, you can see that when popes are starting to say, well, later on, and particularly after this period, are going to start making temporal claims about you know, um, how much power they have in the state of Italy, how much power they have over the various kings that are going to be rising up out of the barbarian invasions of the fifth century that um, in practical terms, popes are going to be in a much better position to make those claim, make good on those claims than the um, bishops in the Eastern Empire. So that's where I'm going to leave us historically with um, the development of the papacy, is with Leo the Great, the first, first uh, pope to have great attached to his name because he is both a um, sort of giant on the theological scene and a, uh, a giant on the um, administrative and governmental scene um, in his own half of the empire. And these are some of the things um, that I've been able to highlight is that within the, the medieval church, there's a tendency when it does its own historiography um, throughout the Middle Ages for popes there to claim that every, everything that they're claiming you know, in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries as their rightful authority is something that popes have always claimed. And we can see historically that that's not true, that uh, this, this authority was being arrogated to them 
piece by piece over time. Now, this is very different from what Catholics say today, um, and I want to, to be clear on that. Catholics today don't say um, the office of the Bishop of Rome has always had the kind of powers that it, that it has claimed e even to today. For, um, they, they recognize the same story. The difference is that in Protestant churches, we will say, well, that means that the, the, the structure of authority in the church is probably something quite different from what has been developed. And Catholics will say that, no, this is an organic development that is there from the beginning, and we see taking successive forms um, in church history. So um, hopefully that will clarify some, uh, give you some grounds for, for understanding where, where Catholics are coming from today versus where uh, Protestants are based on this early church, this early segment of history. Of course, the, the, the full story of that debate will take um, a, a, a detailed understanding of both the medieval church and then the arguments that are going on in the Reformation. But that is something for church history sections two and three, um, <laughs> which hopefully will be forthcoming in the near future. Um, are there any uh, last questions, last, last quick questions? Yeah. That's above my pay grade, um, <laughs> as, as a great statesman once said. Um, any other, uh, <laughs> any, anything that, that, uh, that maybe I can uh, answer quickly and, and redeem myself a little bit? Any different ways that we can think Matthew 16 18? You mentioned in the beginning that you were going to show Well, there are, um, number one, there are there's the idea that it's something of a stretch to, to go from saying, wow, Peter, you are uniquely important in this, to saying every successor uh, of you will have um, absolute authority over the rest of the church uh, in, in sort of a singular way. That's, that's a pretty big leap that many, many Catholics have said. Um, before the Reformation, and then many Reformation um, people on the other side of things uh, have interpreted and said, wait, let's step back and say that it's not, abs you know, th this verse isn't saying, it's not applying to thing things to, to Peter um, that are not shared by other leaders within the church um, in this, this unique, successive way. Um, so, so that authority is being uh, spread out more, more fully in, in sort of the apostles as a whole, um, and that they're, wherever their teaching is being carried on faithfully, that that kind of authority um, is going to be there. So that's, that, that is another major way that this is being interpreted, um, as opposed to the, the historical way of saying, so this was, this was given to, to Peter uniquely. Peter went to Rome. Peter died in Rome. He, made, he commissioned successors in Rome. Therefore, that's physically where this authority lies. Um, people have looked at it in a much uh, broader way. Another thing that people have pointed out is that Peter was also bishop over Antioch. And so should that somehow share in this authority because he was there and appointed successors there? Um, so it's, th th there, there's definitely some, some room for that. One question over here. Uh, going back to the question on seems that um, uh, Episcopos uh, outranks um, Presbyteros, and that seems to be the case in, in the writings that we have following um, 
the New Testament, so for example in Ignatius, but what exactly that structure is doing in the earliest generations of the church is something that's very much under scholarly debate because, yeah. Yeah, I mean our church will say it's phenomenal. Yeah. That's just the boy and so Peter are used interchangeably by Solomon. He just says that I would affirm the fact that there's what has, has developed in the bishop and elder or, you know, basically the same offer. But again, early church, you know, quickly went into a different direction and yeah, so there's there's quite a bit of room, and the testimonies are not all um, lined up. Um, they're they're um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a tough field. Okay, well, thank you very much, and uh, I'd like to close this in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you um, once again for giving us the chance to study uh, not only your word, but the history of this community, of your body on earth um, as it's been developing, as it's decided, how it will govern itself and the challenges that it's faced, Lord. And I pray that you will give us um, wisdom in our governing of ourselves as uh, one part of your church body and that we'll be able to learn from the examples, both good and bad, that have gone before us, God, and that you will continue to maintain us in a loving community that is worthy to be called um, the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.